Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Patrick, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. In fact, the whole human nature ought to overflow with a richness of spiritual joys as it sees itself united with the divine partner. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. This sermon is Praise and Dwell With Us, and it was probably delivered in the mid-1200s by Thomas Aquinas. All right, so for those of you who are not familiar, this is Patrick, and he is from the Cave to the Cross podcast, and he's on this episode, special co-host this episode, because Joel was going to be out of town, was having some issues, but he he was not able to make it with us this episode, and so Patrick is on for us. We're really happy to have him, and his show, Cave to the Cross podcast, is fantastic. It goes over apologetics. It goes to the source material. Uh, Patrick is an incredibly smart guy. He told me just the prep he did for this episode on Thomas Aquinas was like way above and beyond anything anybody ever had to do reading multiple books by Aquinas and all this kind of stuff and he was he is an incredibly intelligent person so if you really want to beef up your apologetics and you really want to learn some stuff I definitely recommend you subscribe to his show and after every church history trivia night that we've ever had I've always had somebody like message us and be like who was that guy with the apologetics podcast so he has a show that he catches people's attention so thank you Patrick for being on thank you all right, Patrick. Aquinas is a famous name in history. Even if you don't know much about church history, the name Aquinas may stand out to you from philosophy classes. He is said to be one of the most important theologians and philosophers in Western history. Yet, when he wasn't writing great theological treatises, he was preaching. One of the things we always forget about these people that in Christian history and church history is that many of them weren't just, you know, book writers. They weren't just the smart guys that we remember them for, but it was their church work and it was their preaching and their teaching and their reaching their congregations that actually made the difference. You know, another philosopher that people don't realize or don't think about and behind a pulpit like Soren Kierkegaard, sometimes these guys were doing other things for the faith too, and we forget about that. And so, not many people probably think about Aquinas' sermons, and yet we get the opportunity to listen to one of those sermons here in this episode, which is pretty cool to know that these men with these great brains also usually had great hearts that they were using to serve God. But but we have to say, this episode, if you know much about Thomas Aquinas, we are skipping some of, I don't, I would call it the fanciful stuff, the kind of out there strangeness that you've seen. Patrick, you saw some really strange things and and when you were looking up stuff for Thomas Aquinas yeah I mean just just his life alone is is pretty strange and bizarre and so to have these like little pockmarks of like uh, 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 him uh, being attested to floating uh, during uh, times of this just this like a- angelic stupor that he uh, that he's witnessed in or um, uh, we'll get to this uh, story where he's uh, uh, kind of imprisoned uh, 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 home arrested. And he um, has a, a, a prostitute brought in by his, his family to try and, like, trick him. And so he chases her out, and he gets uh, brought a holy chastity belt from heaven. And it's uh, one of the the holy relics that the church uh, claims to still have. So, uh, you know, it, a, a weird life that this guy has, and also some just— uh, some weird events that uh, are attributed to him as well. In, in fact, uh, uh, one of the 
the odd things too about him being canonized uh, from the saints is uh, you know you have to have this attribution of miracles and so while things are happening to him there's nothing that he does and so he's one of the few saints of the the catholic order that uh, that doesn't have uh, works of miracles attributed to him so we wanted to mention that, but we're also, we at Revive Studios are not going to 100% say, you know, if the Lord wanted to float Thomas Aquinas or <laughs> or create a holy chastity belt, I su- suppose the Lord could have done that, but we're going <laughs> to go ahead and skip over those parts of the stories of Thomas Aquinas and kind of assume that maybe that's, maybe that maybe didn't happen. So um, we're going to go ahead and stick more with the factual sides of the story. But if you want to hear some interesting, weird mythologies, you can go look that up after you're done with this episode and who knows what you're going to find. Right. But yeah, uh, Aquinas has this, this bizarre life. And so he was born in the year uh, 1225 in the kingdom of Sicily, uh, but on the mainland of Italy. And his family was uh, of this noble birth and he kind of grew up in a castle uh, and he grew up well off, but not as well off as many of the other families around him. Now, this guy just could be legend, but apparently a, a holy hermit uh, kind of came to his mom and uh, prophesied before his birth that uh, that the young uh, child would uh, become an important friar. And at the age of five, he was rolled as a Benedictine monastery to uh, become a future abbot or a person who ran the school. And lo and behold, his uncle was the current abbot, so this kind of seemed like a shoo-in for old Thomas. But in 1239, this war broke out, and he ended up going to the University of Naples to finish his studies. And this completely changed his trajectory and probably impacted thinkers like Newton and, and just the, the impact of, of science and math uh, that we probably don't even realize that he had effect where he then read the works of Aristotle and he wanted to be uh, this uh, Dominican friar. He wanted to change kind of his friarship and his path. Which is really cool because in his moment in his life, he's probably about, you know, he's about 14 years old. A war breaks (laughs) out. You know, he has to go to a different school. To him, this looks like a disaster. You know, I had one plan for my life and now everything's breaking up and different. And yet we have the benefit of history to be so thankful. I, you know, it reminds me of Charles Spurgeon. One day he was going to church, um, a giant snowstorm, blizzard gets in. He can't go to his church. So he has to duck into another church and he ends up getting saved from the sermon preached that day. You know, what looked like a disaster in that moment. Oh my gosh, there's a blizzard. I can't get to church. I had to duck into this. Who knows what's at church over here. It turns out to be this really great thing. And there's so many moments like that in history where it's like, if this one thing hadn't happened, if he hadn't been in the middle of a war and he had just kept going where he goes, who knows how different history would have been. I just love those little little divots where, where one person's kind of on a plan and something, you know, something big that looks bad changes it, but it actually ends up working out so much better for everybody. Now, you may be wondering why we're kind of talking about Dominican and Benedictine matters, especially if you're not Catholic. I have no Catholicism in my background at all. So to me, like when I read these things, it's, it's, it's almost like reading a different language to me. It doesn't really, it has no effect on me. If you were to come up to me and be like, Benedictine or Dominican, I I would have like, no idea. I don't, none of that makes any sense. But there is a really big difference. The Benedictine monks of the 1200s were much more political. They were affluent. They were extravagant. It was kind of more of a political position, um, one that was good for your family. You know, those bishops and stuff could kind of help you get positions. And they were kind of, you know, I don't want to say Machiavellian because that's coming later, but it, kind of in that same sense where they're, they're pulling the strings and they don't live maybe the most uh, humble of lives per se. And it was a good, it was seen as a good thing. You want your family was angling for those kind of jobs. 
On the other side, the Dominicans were kind of a response to this. They wanted to be more traditional in the way they went about the faith. They were about doing good works. They wanted to live in poverty and help the poor. And they were kind of a newer movement. And they were interested in purity and piousness. And this sounds, you know, great to you and me. You're probably listening to this and thinking like, well, the Dominicans sound like the better guys. But when Thomas Aquinas told his family about his newfound decision to go in the Dominican route, they were horrified because, you see, they'd been counting on Aquinas getting a job and being a Benedictine and making their lives easy and getting money and pulling strings and all that. And now their, you know, golden goose, their 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 plans for his future, their business deals are all falling through because he's going to go become the other kind of priest, you know, the, the good one. And he's going to give all that up. And they were very upset about it. So they literally kept him from leaving home for a year. They they kidnapped him. They they basically blocked him in the home castle and said, you're not allowed to leave. And for a year, they constantly told him how great it would be if you would just stay. And they tried to teach him how the Benedictine was better and the Dominican way was wrong. And they tried to trick him. They even, as far as the story goes, and I don't know there's any stories saying it didn't happen, hired a prostitute to try to seduce him so that he would feel impure and would feel less interested in going the Dominican route. And it did not work. Um, I don't think the heavenly chastity belt did the trick, but it didn't work. And they did everything they could to ply him. But after a year, it just, it wasn't working. They gave up and they had to move on. But this was the response. And it's not the only one, you know, there was um, Andrew Gray famously, when he became a Christian, his dad locked him in the attic to keep him from going to Bible studies. There are times where your family will be your number one enemy um, when they find out that you want to live for the Lord in a newfound way, they will do everything they can to drive you off that path. But sometimes we don't think about the geniuses, the great ones of history, like Thomas Aquinas, who may have had stuff like going like that going on very early in their days. Yeah, we we see that a lot. Um, uh, I think with some of the big names on on our side of the fence too. I mean, you have Luther, whose dad wasn't happy with the path that he took, or Calvin, or um, uh, Augustine. You know, they had family members that were kind of disappointed, not realizing that uh, that they would become, uh, you know, these great men of, of history known to us. And and yeah. uh, Aquinas is famous today, but uh, he actually wasn't perceived that uh, uh, being that smarter or that uh, that soon to be well known. Uh, while studying at some of the best schools in Europe, he was kind of a, a heavier fellow. You know, he kind of had a lopsided eyes, and he was uh, very slow to speak, and he, he was always, you know, kind of uh, had this look on his face. He was introverted, very shy. Uh, he wasn't known for his words. And so his fellow students uh, ca- called him a, a dumb ox, which uh, I, I'm sure uh, translates uh, just well. And so it, it, it shows that school really hasn't changed for for the bullies Ima- to, uh, to could you to imagine being called the dumb ox in school i mean that's just especially when you're yeah. not that good looking i mean that's gotta hurt i i feel like this is this is like the the hallmark movie or the uh the teenage <laughs> drama where you know uh, now he's got to go uh, and, and get a makeover and uh, he'll, he'll he'll be the stunner well exactly instead of 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 makeup he he adds a lot of Arist- aristotelian teaching to his 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 own teaching to his papers and he uh, he was one of the first to blend some of these kind of Greek principles, this uh, deductive logic, uh, and that you see uh, most famously in his uh, his uh, five proofs of God, and uh, uh, you see him working in, in in with that as a background. And unfortunately, some some say here that uh, here's where the pushback is, and at this point, the the church kind of goes astray of of including these these uh, Greek Aristotelian uh, principles. Uh, interestingly, even at the time, apparently many were not sure kind of what to do, what to what to make of it. 
They didn't care for the fact that Aquinas was a Dominican, and they wanted to keep him from being made a scholar. And it might be important to help ground Aquinas in his time to, although yes, he did bring Greek ideas into his theology and what he was doing. Um, this is partially because he was responding to some stuff at his time where basically there was this idea of uh, uh, this idea that truths in science and truths in the spiritual world were naturally opposed to each other. And so there was this big fight basically could, you know, faith and science get along, which is something I think we can all agree happens even in our time. And so Aquinas found this way to bridge them through some of these Greek ideas, and that helped kind of calm the debate for many centuries. Did it cause some problems? It, it may have, it may not have, depending on your perspective, but also it did help in that debate in their time period where it kept the idea from science had to be pretty much detached. It, it was causing, it, it ended what was going to become a real problem at his time, I think. Um, but the Pope helped allow Aquinas to get accepted into his teaching positions. He kind of stepped in when people were like, hey, we can't let Dominican in, and was like, we're going to let this one in. And Aquinas really devoted himself to teaching, preaching, traveling, writing. He became very popular and people really liked him. Again, the old dumb ox is suddenly, you know, this really world famous you're traveling lectionary givener. And he, uh, he, during this time would write, uh, I think it's 90 books. Um, he wrote the Summa Apologetica Gentiles, I think, but I'm not an expert in that language. And it's a apologetic to the Gentiles where he really tries to convince people that the Christian faith is very reasonable and it's very logical and you have lots of good reasons to believe in it, um, which is very useful and is still honestly not a bad thing. There's, I believe, uh, five main proofs that uh, that Patrick here could explain to you really well and maybe <laughs> will explain to you if you check out his show, Cave to the Cross. Um, he also wrote commentaries and encouraged pastors and he even wrote a hymn that has been many times translated over, but it's one. Of, he wrote several hymns, but one of the ones that we still actually sing today, it's kind of been altered over time, but it's Humbly We Adore Thee. So if you have never heard of that one or Humbly We Adore You, uh, don't worry about it. But if you have, you go, oh, okay, yeah, that's where you get it from. 800 years ago, Aquinas wrote that one. So he, he was a man of many talents who wasn't just, again, just the brains of the outfit, but he had a real heart and it was coming out of him in multiple ways. Yeah, yeah I, I think this is kind of like George Whitfield who who uh, his his physical characteristics uh, always seems to uh, lend him to kind of uh, uh, be almost a caricature of, of a high whiny person. Uh, but yet, you know, he's uh, known to, to be this uh, uh, presenter of the Gospels to the to the new world in, in massive, massive ways. And so um, uh, here we, we see um, the, the big dumb ox and and. Uh, uh, he goes on to write these these massive tomes that that we still read that that um, philosophers secular and and whatnot still read to this day, but unfortunately he never did finish this work though. At the age of just forty nine, he was in the middle of finishing uh, this this uh, the third part of his Summa Theologica uh, when he received this angelic vision, and so no one's quite really knows what was said, uh, but he's kind of received these in the past or claims to have had. Uh, but this was one that he said was the strongest one he's had yet. It was said to him that compared to God's actual words, his writings would amount to next to nothing. And he never wrote another word. He's he's on his last version here and, and his last part, and he, he just never finishes the, the uh, Summa Theologica. And in three months, he's dead, and he never finishes uh, this this big, big work. And who knows what else he would have uh, had under his belt uh, if he kept going. 
Despite that, his impact has lasted and he is studied by many, from Catholics to evangelicals. He has been highly regarded due to his bold philosophies and his desires to defend the faith. Yeah, I learned um, after working on this a little bit more, I'm sure you saw it too, when he died, how he died. Did you see that as well, Patrick? Yeah, he's he's like uh, traveling and, and he just kind of like falls and he's... Yeah, he's but he's also out. on... He's on his way to the Council of Lyons, number two. Apparently, they were going to try to bring, at this point, the Western and Eastern Church has schismed, and this council was meant to bring them back, and Aquinas was being brought over to help do that, and he dies on the way and is never able to do it. The church obviously never comes back together from being split in half and they're in the schism, but man, you know, never know. I guess if he had gotten there, who knows, maybe maybe his great intellect and all his speaking abilities, the old ox could have brought him together. We'll never know because he never got there on time. So just another one of those what-if moments we'll have to wonder about but um i i think that, okay i gotta ask you what do you think i mean just on your own personal opinion what do you think about the vision that made him stop writing what do you think he did see a vision that told him that or do you think he was just getting old and i haven't i mean 49 is not that old so i don't really know i i i think it's one of those um those ideas of uh the, there's a fine line between genius and uh, madness <laughs> and i think you know you're writing you know, 90 books and, and just like you're, you're delving in deep. And, you know, he, he says that, uh, his words to him feel like chaff. They're, they're just this wheat that go up and go out. And I think, uh, you know, he, he probably just had the burnt out and they don't, they didn't know kind of how to, how to deal with it back then. It seems like mm-hmm. this focus of, of what he was trying to do and, and his, his, uh, goal of, of trying to get, um, uh, this the, the the works of the Greeks and this understanding that um, uh, that all all knowledge is uh, derived by God's knowledge, but that there's an, an underlying world uh, of of natural theology that can be understood to to those even that don't believe. And I I, I also feel reading this that if if he would have just maybe encountered uh, uh, 400 years later someone from the Reformation, he could have been on our side, and he could have really uh, um, uh, been kind of a a pre-Vantilian uh, type uh, uh, person, so it's it's interesting uh, to to uh, to wonder what uh, what might have been revealed to him or what he thought uh, was revealed to him. But uh, uh, it's one of those uh, things where it's like I, I wonder what he would have done uh, if he had continued, like you said. It is a good question. Sadly, one we may never fully, uh, you know, one of those things we may fully never know the answers to where he would have landed on some of these big issues because, as we said, he did not. Um, make it from that point. I think that I probably agree with you. I, I do. I do. It reminds me of a line, though. One thing that kind of makes me pause is it reminds me of a line by Jonathan Swift in his sermon, very early sermon we did in this show. Again, one of those people that many people don't think about preaching, Jonathan Swift, the famous satirist. And he said, what would you trade one line of scripture for a thousand pages of philosophy? And he said, of course not. Uh, scripture will last for all of eternity. It won't be here a thousand years after the earth is burnt to dust. But that philosophy won't be worth a hill of beans. And I do wonder if on some level, you know, the, other, the only argument I would say for him stopping is I wonder if on some level he had that same thought that Swift had and realized, what am I doing? Like, I, I can't prove all. I don't know. I wonder if there was some part of him that got in that mindset and he maybe just said, I can't keep going. I, I don't know. It's very strange. The whole thing is very strange. Um, it's such a weird way for him to end his ministry. 
and we'll never know for sure what was going through his head and why he why he was so certain it was an angelic vision. All right, this passion for theology and higher understanding bled into his sermons too, and it may require multiple listens to fully understand this one. I must admit, of all the people's sermons I've worked with, and we've done Puritans, early church fathers, men from Princeton, all kinds of people from all over, this is one of the toughest sermons I've ever worked on. The person I sent it to read it, he also agrees. It's a tough one. So enjoy it. Go in with a good attitude. Have a, Maybe it takes you a couple of listens to fully understand and embrace every aspect of what this genius from the past is telling us. But I did want to caveat. We've had a lot of new listeners coming on board lately. If this is your first you know, sermon with Rye Thoughts, highly encourage you to check out our episodes on Spurgeon, Bonhoeffer, Taylor, um, some of our earlier, Kierkegaard, there's lots of really great sermons on here. I would love if Thomas Aquinas is not the first sermon you listen to, only because this one is, it is a little more difficult um, than the average one by a lot. And if this, I'd hate for that to taint your opinion. But if you're, if you don't mind, or if you're just going to go for it anyway and have fun, I totally think you'll be fine. It will be a good time. And there's definitely stuff to gain from it. It just, it is a little bit higher level. Um, it is a little more of a challenge to listen to, I think, than some of them. But I do always remind people, this sermon is 800 years old. It was written a very long time ago. In my mind, what impresses me the most is not what's different about the sermon. Lots of things are different about how the sermon sounds. What impresses me the most is how much the gospel has not changed. If you listen to our culture and the way they talk about things, you would believe that, you know, Christianity was written up by a bunch of people not that long ago. And then you listen to a sermon from 800 years ago, and they're preaching the same gospel and the same Jesus Christ as we believe in today. And that, I think, is really, really cool. Zechariah 2.14 Sing, praise, and be glad, daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. It is as St. Bernard says, While I often think of the burning passion of the fathers who expected Christ's coming, I feel shame in myself. For someone who considers the longings of those who were seeking, oh, the wonderful desires of those who were expecting Christ's coming, can well become aware of his own weakness in respect to the hope already received that proceeds from his coming. Isaiah yearned for this coming with a frequent sigh. In Isaiah 16.1, Send out the Lamb, Lord. And elsewhere, Oh, may you tear your heavens and come down. Zechariah preached with tremendous joy, as is clear from the text. Here the prophet does three things. First, one must see the joyfulness of the return that is spoken of, which is shown by a double and perfect gladness. In view of this, three things are required for perfect gladness. These three will elevate the mind to dwell on higher things. We can first see it here where it is mentioned, daughter of Zion. For if you carefully consider the divine benefits, then you will be a daughter of Zion. And if you sing of the divine announcements in exultation and praise them in thanksgiving with delight, your joy will be perfect. If spiritual gladness is born from this, you will rejoice, daughter of Zion. And this is what the prophet taught, saying, Sing, praise, and be glad, daughter of Zion. For a man came in order to announce the coming of his Lord by means of preaching, as we read in Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful the feet of the ones who announce and preach peace. And then, of the one who says to Zion, The Lord your God will reign. 
For such a person deserves to hear the divine preaching who does not want anything but to be conversational from Christ and with Christ. Therefore the Lord says in Matthew 21.5 and Zechariah 9.9, Say to the daughter of Zion, that is, to speak to the soul that dwells on the benefits of God through meditation, your king is coming for you. I interpret this as, Tell that person who desires to hear the joy of his coming, because your Savior will come, it says in Lamentations, and from the midst of the nations. For according to what St. Bernard says, the divine reconciliation grows, but it is not given to those who admit someone else's faith. Such are the daughters of Zion, and therefore the sight of his coming through contemplation is announced and promised to them. Zechariah 9.9 says, Exult greatly, daughter of Zion. And Songs 3.11 reads, Go out, daughters of Zion, and see. Go out from the rags of our sins and be daughters of Zion. Through thought of the things that are above. And so you will be able to see King Solomon, or in our case, the Lord of the angels. And he will be in the crown with which his mother has crowned him. That is, in the humanity assumed from Judah's descendants. Now to the second point, for perfect gladness, it is required that the affection grows into a spiritual joy, which is mentioned where it says, be glad. Well, it is just that a faithful soul will want to exult. In fact, the whole human nature ought to overflow with a richness of spiritual joys as it sees itself united with the divine partner. For she who was once a wilderness and impassable, because of the dryness in regard to the heavenly grace, is now made flourishing and sprouting because she is assumed by the Son of God in the unity of the body. Isaiah 35.1 reads, The wilderness and the impassable will be glad, and the desert will exult and flourish like a lily. Produce abundantly, and exult full of gladness and singing praise. And he proceeds, The glory of Lebanon will be given to her. And elsewhere it is said in Isaiah 2, you will not be called abandoned anymore. Furthermore, at the same time she experiences that, she is also placed in the community of the holy ones. For the soul that was counted once upon a time among the company of the ones from hell is now reckoned among the company of the angels. So it says in the last chapter of Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in God and I will praise. Now the people enter Zion singing praise, as it was foretold in Isaiah 35.10, everlasting gladness is upon their heads. And the psalmist says, I am glad because of these things that are said to me, let us enter the house of the Lord. Furthermore, at the same time, she experiences the strength of the heavenly help. Once there was a sadness in the whole human nature because of a lack of grace, because that door was closed, because of the oppression of the ancient captivity. But now the divine grace is poured out, since all are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we read in Acts 2.4 and 4.31. That heavenly door is opened, as it is said in Revelation 4.1, I have seen the gate opened in heaven. The power of the devil is repelled, as it is said in John 12.31, the ruler of this world is cast down. And Revelation 12.10, now the salvation, the strength, and the reign of our God has come, and the authority of his Christ, because the accuser of our brothers is cast out, who accused them before our God day and night. And further on, rejoice, heavens, 
and you who dwell in them? This was foreseen, as we read in Isaiah 9.3, they will rejoice before you as those who rejoiced in harvest time. Third, for perfect gladness, our tongue must be excited to the proclamation of the divine praise, which is mentioned where it says, sing praise. For if there is a graceful knowledge of God in our intellect and an intimate praise in our love, the consequence is that it cannot be any other way than that there is a song of praise in our mind. Therefore, he says, sing praise. For a faithful soul is satisfied. Because of this, she gives praises to her Redeemer in return. For it is said in Philippians 3, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our heart and our intellect. Yes, we ought to praise the power of the one who battles for us, who has led us out and away from dangers. Quite a big danger is serving the devil and sin, for this is the slavery of Pharaoh. But now that we are freed from sin, we have yet become slaves for God. And it follows in that next verse that my strength and my praise are the Lord. Furthermore, we ought to praise the justice of the Redeemer, since by dying he destroyed our death. For it was proper to justice that death would be paid for death, but that it was paid by Christ was proper to mercy. For he paid what he had not robbed, and this together with justice is to the highest extent praiseworthy. In Proverbs it says, It is proper to justice that the praise of God will stand straight. And Isaiah 61.11 says, The Lord will make justice and praise arise for all the nations. We continue seeing the benevolence of the Savior because he has led us back to eternal life. Just as the Apostle says in Colossians 1.11-13, With joy we ought to give thanks to God the Father, who wrested us away from the power of darkness and brought us over into the beloved kingdom of his Son. Therefore it is said in Isaiah 43, Praise the Lord, you heavens, because he has worked mercy. To my second point, in the saying above, it is stated that the coming is at hand. Here where it says, Behold, I come. I interpret I come as coming in a visible way, in the form of humanity, whereby a novelty unheard of is shown. He says, Behold. By speaking in this way, he excites our timid hearts, that we may go to meet him, as we read about in Isaiah 36. Behold our God, we awaited him, and he will save us. Zechariah 9.9 Behold, your king comes. Furthermore, he demonstrates the newness of this thing, that we may be attentive and stand in awe of it. Just like the spouse speaks in Songs 2.8, Behold, he comes, leaping on the mountains. And in Isaiah it says, Behold, I make all things new, and then he appears. Furthermore, he makes it known that it is at hand, so that we may organize a place where he is welcome to stay. In Malachi 3.1 it says, Behold, he will come to his holy temple. And we read in Daniel 7, Behold, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. So by saying, Behold, the Son of God made himself known as visible in the form of humanity. In a personal way, he also comes in the substance of divinity, in which an infinite magnificence is shown. And this is mentioned where it says, I. For this is the person who has spoken through the mouth of all the prophets. Isaiah says, I who have spoken. Behold, I am here. What he speaks is the redemption of all sinners. As we read in Isaiah 36, I speak justice. What he speaks of 
is the judgment at the end of all times, according to the psalmist, when the time will have come, I will administer justice. Moreover, his tongue will speak justice, and justly so, for he has eternal being, and as such precedes all things. As it is said in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. After all, he comes forth from God consubstantially and eternally, as we read in John 8.42, I have come forth from the Father, and I have come. Furthermore, he has an immense power, and so he has brought forth all things. It says in Isaiah, I am God, and there is no other who formed the light and created the darkness. For since the Son is God, the origin from the origin, he has with him the same being and power, and he has perfect knowledge, and this is how he governs all things. Since he himself is light from light, just as the Father has infinite power, so does the Son. In John 8.12, reads, I am the light of the world. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is perished. And it says in John 12, The Son of Man has come into the world, not to judge the world, but in order to save the world through him. For, since we were stripped of all honor, therefore he has come as a leader with an infinite dignity. In Joshua 5.14 it is said, I am the ruler of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And more, since we were separated from the divine love, therefore he has come as the peace of a love never heard of. As we read in Ephesians 5, he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and coming, he brought the good news of peace to all you who were far off. And it was not only the love of the coming Son, but also of the Father who sent him, as we read in John 5.43, I have come in the name of my Father. And even further, since we were deprived of light or splendor, he came as a light of an infinite clarity. John 12.46, I am the light that has come into the world. Third, in the saying above, the humility of his coming is shown where it says, and I will dwell in your midst as if he is saying, I will be a companion on your pilgrimage. And therefore he says, I will dwell. Well, he dwelt with us in three ways. With all people, in a general way, through the substance of the flesh, as we read in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But also, as with the holy people, in a special way, through infused grace, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.16, I will dwell among them and I will be their God and more with the good people in a familiar way, by being present before their eyes, as the psalmist says, forever they will praise and you will dwell among them. St. Bernard says, For this he came into the world, that he might dwell among the people and in them, and that he might enlighten the darkness for people, lighten their labor, and ward off dangers. He was like the middle person in reconciliation, in your midst, as it is said in Luke 22, I am in their midst. Now, he was in our midst in order to reconcile God and man. John 2 reads, In the midst of you he has stood whom you do not know. And it says in Deuteronomy, I was the middle person and the intermediary between you and God. We continue in order to bring along the fullness of joy, as it is said in John twenty nineteen. Jesus stood in the midst of his disciples and said, Peace be with you. And it continues, the disciples rejoiced 
And we read in Isaiah 12:6, Exult and sing praise, inhabitants of Zion, because great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Finally, he was with us as the Lord in distributing favorable gifts. One part in the middle of the sermon, he talks about just how when you're following the Lord, how just following that Lord should make you glad. And I, that was one of, the, one of the parts that stood out to me most about the sermon. A man of this kind of theological headiness, you know, big, sometimes we think of theology, we think of these kind of bookworm types, and they, they, they may have a lot of head knowledge, but do they have a lot of joy in the Lord? Honestly, are academic institutions normally known as joyful places? And sometimes they can be, but let's be honest, sometimes they're not. Sometimes those are some of the most wooden uh, frozen people you can meet. I, I know I have experienced, you know, that being in those professors' rooms and stuff where I'm like, my goodness, you know, they know so much, but where is that joy? Where is that desire and that love? And I love that Thomas Aquinas, if somebody has an excuse to be um, a little bit theological and heady, a guy who wrote 90 books and lived, you know, 100 years ago, blah, blah, all that stuff going on, he might have had that excuse. Yeah, he, he starts out by saying, you know, if you're following the Lord, if Jesus has come to you, you're going to be following him in gladness with singing and song. And so I hope that that stands out to you. And I hope that when you're walking with God, you don't let the excuse of head knowledge or doctrine or anything like that keep you from singing joyfully to the Lord, because that glad heart and that joy is something we all need to have. And if these great theological tome-carrying giants of the past can do it with a joyful smile on, I hope that we can all not have any excuses that keep us from doing it as well. A special thanks to Josiah Kerrigan for reading this sermon. Josiah has read a couple sermons for us in the past. I really recommend you go check out R.A. Torrey and uh, Soren Kierkegaard. I'm blanking on what the other one was off the top of my head, but he's done quite a few for us. He's been very helpful. Um, And uh, he lives in Washington State. He's married with four kids. He is active in student ministry at his current church, and he worked as a missionary overseas in Africa before that, and he is a teacher as his day job. Also, speaking of people who have done episodes for us before, Patrick, thank you for coming on this episode and helping me out. And uh, you have done episodes for us. You've done Gregory of Nisa. I know that was your most recent one, but I also recall that you did Gregory of Nazianzus. And who else did you do for us? I'm missing John one. Gill. John Gill. John Gill. So you've yeah. done some killer episodes for us that we encourage you to go check back on those. They they have all been great, really. And people are always surprised how much someone from like the 300s can impact them today. And yeah, I really think that the Gregory of Nazianz this episode, um, uh, not that the, the other passion, two aren't really the good, but they're just... You, uh, yeah, the passion that he carried through in that message, it, it, it would make you think that he read that just last week at your church. But yeah. here he is, you know, you're 300, you know, he's a, a generation removed from, from Christ. And he he's there with the passion and, and the challenge as well. So people needed a, a kick in the pants uh, even back then, too. Yeah, I, I really think that's actually something I don't know how I'd ever do this, but I would love to do what you just said, where just take some of these old sermons, hand them to pastors today and like basically not trick their church, but just be like, oh, by the way, that sermon you just heard, 1900 years old. <laughs> Did you know that? Because that's how truly timeless some of these pieces of works are and how truly applicable they are throughout history. But uh, Patrick... Every, I, I'm sure after listening to you and how intelligent and wise you have sounded today, everyone is going to want to subscribe to you. Why don't you go tell them where they can find your show and what you guys are up to? The only reason that I'm intelligent is because I read a, a lot of books that uh, other people have, and I'm just uh, able to parody, uh, parrot and cite uh, accurately. So um, uh, I, I uh, do the show with uh, 
with a, a doctor of philosophy, uh, Tony, who's uh, Tony Gavan, who's my elder at, at my church, and he's uh, my mentor. Who uh, we we've met together for uh, going on eight years now, and uh, we decided let's stick a camera in front of it. And so we say, let's take these great books that we know that are sitting on our shelves, that are collecting dust, that look good. Let's pull them down and and be be. Um, impacted by the words that uh, that we're, we're supposed to, to read along with Scripture. And one of the things that I love about Revived Thoughts is that it grounds that philosophy and that apologetics in the, the working of history, and, and God uses both those things. So um, I, I've, I've gotten a lot of good apologetic methods just from uh, listening to, to Troy and Joel's show as well. And so we just t- take books off, we go chapter by chapter, and we kind of break down what, what might be intimidating to some people uh, who don't have a background in, in apologetics or theology or, or maybe just want to listen to a book as, as, as two uh, Christians uh, kind of uh, uh, go, go through it and, and see what uh, um, uh, better people than, than I um, have to say that, uh, that really parse it out. And so we, uh, we just have a joy doing that, and it's kind of like this little book club that we invite you in on. All right. Thank you so much, Patrick. Definitely make sure you go check it out, Cave to the Cross podcast. And Patrick has always been a good friend of Revive Thoughts. As I mentioned, he's read several sermons for us. He's always been a huge supporter. So please go and support him and all the encouragement he's given throughout the years by subscribing to his show and telling them, hey, you found him from Revive Thoughts. So he can feel excited that that got to happen. All right. This is Troy and Patrick, and this is Revive Thoughts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.